Bruce Nolan is standing by. Hey, wacky Bruce! Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive. And here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. Welcome back to a weird Friday. Typically, on this podcast, on Fridays, we would do two distinct things. We would go through your almighty takes for the upcoming Bills game, in this case, Bills-Titans, and we would go through a little bit of a strategy session that will coincide with a written piece that I will have put on Buffalo Rumblings called Crumbling Their Cookies. But today is not a normal Friday, because today is not a normal week, because today is not part of a normal year. So, knowing that, I came into the year with a few contingency plans that I thought, hey, if something goes down and I need to make sure that I have something I really want to talk about, I'm going to do it. Now, there's a very real chance at the time of this recording, it's 5.45 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Thursday the 8th. There still may be a Bills-Titans game. There has been no announcement at this time. In fact, the most recent announcement from NFL spokesperson was at 4.15 saying, as of right now, the game is on. But... We don't necessarily know if that's going to happen. So I said, okay, well, what is the Bills Mafia going to do if they need to invest that energy elsewhere this weekend? If Bills Titans doesn't happen and they're looking for a place to put their energy, obviously they might watch the Red Zone. They might watch some divisional foes, maybe catch up on the Jets or the Patriots or the Dolphins. But you know what else they could do? What they could do is plop down in front of their couch on Saturday at around noon Eastern Standard Time and watch a full day of college football with their eye on the draft for 2021. And if I wanted to have a discussion about that, I could think of no better person to have this discussion with than Joe Marino of the Draft Network. You know him as the host of Locked On Bills as well. Also the host of Draft Dudes, a member of the Locked On Bills podcasting community. Joe, thank you so much for being here, man. You know, Bruce, I'm I'm listening to you go through this introduction and and you're saying it's not normal. It's not normal. Well, you know what's normal for me is listening to your podcast every Thursday and Friday. And as I'm listening to the introduction to the podcast I listen to every week and look forward to every week, I it kind of just hit me that like I'm getting the live version. I'm getting the live version and I actually like can respond to you. So this should be fun. And I'm a little bit sad because I don't get to like listen to it as a listener and a fan of the show because I look forward to that so much on Fridays. But I guess I'll have to just, uh, you know, just be part of it today. And thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate you being here, Joe. This is that means a lot to me. And this is something that we love to talk about. You and I are both draft nuts. You are draft professional as a member of the draft network. And let's start there with the questions that I want to get into about this conversation. And that is, this has been a weird season for scouting. This is a weird season for college football. You have opt-outs. You have tape from 
two years ago that you're going to have to start going back and looking at? How does this season and the weirdness surrounding it affect the things specifically that TDN wants to do? How does it affect you? I know that a big part of your scouting regimen is ACC. And so thankfully, the ACC started up pretty much on time, but it still changes a lot of things. How is it different for you guys at TDN now because of this weirdness? Well, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is that I'm thankful for our process, our process that we have to scout football players, because we don't start scouting football players the year the season happens, right? We, we start the year before. And so really, once the draft is over in April, we take May to kind of reflect on the draft. And then as soon as June starts, we start looking at the coming draft class and we write up reports on 400 plus players going into the season. That way we know who to watch and and can really evaluate and understand where these players are coming from as they play what could be their last season of college football. And so I'm very thankful that we have that base layer of work done going into this year because, you know, you're not going to have the same information that you normally do. You're not getting the same amount of football games. And so your opportunities to evaluate these players is less. And by doing the thorough work going into the year, you feel like you are set up to be able to take the information that you do get and use it the most effectively that you can. Um, I will say that with players opting out and, you know, many of those have opted back in, but several have not. That gives us a much bigger strike zone to do our evaluations. You know, players like Jamar Chase. Uh, Penny Sewell from Oregon, these big time players, we don't have to wait. There's no new information coming on them. They've played all the college football they're going to play. So we can go ahead and start working on those players. And it really increases your strike zone because for as much as we like to do in advance and get that base work done and really just let the season happen and, and take notes as we go and formalize scouting reports, you know, the reality is that uh, it's still a large volume of work to do in a small amount of time. And so We've never had a situation where high-profile players are done playing football before the season even starts. So it increases our strike zone, which we're trying to take advantage of. Um, but uh, I really, you know, we're trying to embrace it the best we can because in a lot of ways it maybe makes draft season bigger for some people, you know, a larger strike zone because, you know, as much as we think it's a 365-day-a-year conversation, I know that's not the case for everybody. And so – um, by being able to be in this space and maybe make it a bigger strike zone for people to care about, we're trying to take advantage of that as well. And maybe the draft could be pushed back. It could be, you know, as late as June 2nd this coming year. So we're, we're trying to gear up and, and get ready for all of those types of things. And, you know, I guess kind of off the record, it, it um, we're able to, you know, once these guys start training and they're away from their programs and, um, you know, they're not like dialed into being a student athlete. They're just getting ready for the combine. It allows us to get opportunities to speak to them and, and have more exposure than we normally do at this point. So there's a lot of, a lot of good that's kind of happened with, with this from a scouting perspective, not that anything's really good about this, the environment and situation that we're in, but the, the positive that we can take from it is our strike zones bigger and we have more access. So one of the things I think is really interesting about getting closer and closer and closer to the draft every year is you hear things like flying up boards or falling down draft boards. And you think to yourself, gosh, how could they be falling so quickly if they haven't played football in months? Now, in this case, 
you might have that situation where you say, how could they be rising so quickly or how they could they be falling so quickly? And they haven't played football in over a year. Yeah. And so I wonder if the volatility of draft season is going to be increased markedly over exponentially through this. And I wonder if this is going to cause teams to go more aggressive or go less aggressive? Are they going to want to trade up? Are they going to want to trade down? I'm going off script a little bit because I just came to me as we were talking about it. Do you think that you're going to see specific franchises start to get into almost buyers and sellers sort of buckets? And some people might view this as an opportunity to strike gold and some people might be really aggressive or then other franchises might be conservative. Are we going to start to see like a, like a delineation between buyers and sellers because of the way that this draft is sort of unfolded. I think there's a good chance of that. Um, and especially because the salary caps going down. And so these, these teams opportunity to improve their roster is going to be heavily in the draft, right? Those are how you get economic players. And and so you're going to see teams that have to field a roster and they're, you know, look at the, look at the Falcons, the saints, and the Eagles. Uh, I mean, they're anywhere from 25 to $80 million projected over the cap going into 2021. They have to eliminate so much in terms of salary that's going to cost them players that they gotta, they're they going to have to find a way to fill out a roster. And, and so for teams like that, I mean, moving players for picks and, and being able to get cheaper players is going to be critical. But yes, you have teams that maybe look at where they are in their life cycle and, and say, you know, they're a rebuilding team. And, you know, there's there's an opportunity to take a team that's you know built to win right now that doesn't want to mess around with not having the same exposures and, and information that they normally do scouting players, and you you do see this buyer and seller dynamic that could absolutely appear. And in, in you know if I'm a team that's rebuilding, if I'm a you know if I'm a Carolina Panthers or a New York Jets or a Jacksonville Jaguars type team, I want to try to get as much capital as I can for this year. That way that I can you know try to uh, accelerate my rebuild, you know, and it's kind of a great opportunity and why not throw some darts out there and, and, and see what, uh, what sticks and give your chance to, to get some players that maybe in a normal year would have been, you know, more information will be out about them and they would have been higher up the board, but because you had a little nugget or some belief or some aggressiveness about you, you, you decided that you would, uh, take those chances. So I do think that this Uh, sets the stage for a lot of movement and creating that dynamic of buyers and sellers. The NFC East leading Eagles at one, two, and one with massive amounts of money over the projected salary cap in 2021 and injuries all over the place. It's it's going great. It's going great in Philadelphia, (laughs) man. It's, I'll tell you what, um, Howie Roseman, everybody talks about how he's such a a cap genius, but what he's not is a drafting genius. And I think that's really played into this is, is he's not replenished his roster with draft picks that are, that are working out. And man, I mean, just look at, look at the last several years, you're just not seeing enough hits and that front office has been depleted. That coaching staff has been depleted. And now you're seeing, you know, the ingredients that made that team a Super Bowl champion three years ago, they've all been stripped away, just like the Panthers in 2015. That team wasn't built to be one and done. That was a, a long-term contender, but so much was plucked away from that organization and that, that you know, the, it's the, the key pieces that kept it chugging along were no longer there. And, and so, you, I mean, just to kind of tie this back to the Bills, and this is kind of getting galaxy brain and 
getting into some of the things that I've been thinking about as this Bills team emerges 4-0. Josh Allen's playing out of his mind. We're already talking about Brian Dable as the head coaching candidate. Brian Gain already got a chance to be a GM. And, you know, as I learn more about that situation, that was really Bill O'Brien forcing his hand and wanting to be the GM. But having Brian Gain more is just the, the symbolic GM there. He was making the decisions. And the next thing you know, he's fired because he doesn't like Bill O'Brien's ideas. You know, Brian Gain could be a GM and Dan Morgan and Joe Shane and you think about how are the Bills going to be set up to overcome what's coming because nobody's been able to win in Buffalo in a long, long time. McDermott and Bean are doing it, and they're going to want people that have been part of that, that's seen that happen, to replicate what's happening in their organization. And so as much as we're enjoying this Bills success and we're excited about where it can go, I'm really anxious to see what Bean and McDermott have up their sleeve to make sure that they continue to have the front office dynamics, to have the coaching dynamics that has helped them get to this point because sustaining success is hard in the NFL. Winning's hard. Winning consistently for a long time is even harder. And so we'll see what uh, these meticulous men, McDermott and Bean, have up their sleeve to to stay uh, a contender. Yeah, you and I have talked about this before, that there's a there's a difference between success and sustaining success. Yeah. And if you have a, a game that you win, that's great. But the method by which you win the game can predict future wins. The method by which your team is constructed can help you predict whether or not you can win in the future. And as you look across this Bills roster right now, you think, hey, this is an opportunity for sustained success, given the fact that part of the reason that the Panthers were not able to sustain success is because they had Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott plucked from them. <laughs> I'm hard pressed to feel too bad for them. Yeah. But that's, I mean, the Eagles were a Super Bowl winner just a couple years ago, but they didn't replenish the roster. And that's what happens. And this is why drafting is so important. This is why you have the discussion. This is why drafting is a 365 day a year sort of a thing, because how important it is to get good players on rookie contracts. That is the foundational piece upon which franchise is built. And you can win without it. You can win without good play, a ton of good players on rookie contracts, but you can't win successfully over a long period of time without it. That's not possible. You know, Bruce, it's meaningful at every point of your life cycle. It's it's not been just important for Brandon Bean to hit on draft picks at the early stages of the rebuild. It's going to be just as important moving forward as these now draft picks that he's hit on become expensive players. We're seeing it. Trey White, Deion Dawkins, there's going to be plenty more coming up here. As those players become more expensive, you need to keep hitting on draft picks so that you have, for lack of a better term, cheap labor that's meaningful to fill out your roster. So whether you're early on and you, you need young talent to develop or you're at a point where you're contending and you need to keep, keep replenishing, the draft is always the lifeblood of a team and hitting on draft picks is critical at every point of its life cycle. And you and I, I'm sure, are going to talk about this ad nauseum as the draft gets closer, but I am starting to lean into the idea that Brandon Bean's mentality should very likely shift at this point in the life cycle from aggressive trade up to trade down. Yep. and try to accumulate a more significant bevy of picks to be able to get more swings at it because you need more bites of the apple at this point. This is not a let's go get our star players. You've done that. You went and got Josh Allen. You went and traded up and got Tremaine Edmonds. You went and got the foundational pieces that you felt were so important to be able to build this team around. And now what you need is you need as many good players on cheap rookie contracts as possible because the gap is going to start to widen as you start to pay your own players between the upper class on your team and the lower class on your team when it comes to pay scale. So I'm sure we're going to talk about that a lot, but that's kind of where my head is at right now. But there are buyers and sellers possibly 
as you said, but there are also people who are better set up to handle this particular terminology this year, this particular situation this year with COVID-19, with the opt-outs, with all the things that are happening. There are going to be certain types of franchises that are going to be better equipped to handle this, and there are going to be certain franchises that are lesser equipped to handle this immediately comes to mind certain franchises that might be in flux over the last year. Maybe they don't have well-established scouts in specific regions of the country that have good relationships at this point because they were kind of hoping they would build those relationships and now you really can't do it as much because of what's going on. When you look across the league and you look at scouting from team to team and front offices, what types of teams from an attribute standpoint are going to do well here and have this opportunity to kind of get ahead? And what type of teams do you think are going to start to fall behind? Well, you mentioned at the top of our discussion that I, I kind of have a concentration in the ACC. And, and part of what I typically do is I try to get eyes on as many ACC teams, ACC teams as I can. And actually, I'm really proud of this. In 2017, I was able to see every single ACC team except Boston College. But uh, I digress there. But I'm typically on the road a, a good bit. Uh, you know, and, and part of that process is I get to mingle with NFL scouts and executives and, and, and see their process and get some insight on prospects. But, you know, with COVID and, and uh, limited uh, availability in, in terms of space in the press boxes, you know, we're, we're, we tried a couple of games and then I just said, no, I'm not even going to try to do this this year. And so, you know, part of being in tune with seeing that process unfold and since I'm kind of in my, you know, my area here, I, I, I see the same people all the time, you know, and so I'm familiar with what they're doing when they're at these games. And, you know, they're they're not necessarily there to watch the football players. I know that, that seems crazy, right? I'll be honest with you. Most NFL people are gone uh, at halftime, maybe a little into the third quarter. They are out of there because they're there just as much to see the player in the warmups, right? And to talk to coaches and talk to people within uh, the program about the players and and just you know people that get to see these guys on a day to day basis ask them questions you know that's really the the, the benefit of being there and so the teams that are going to be well equipped to kind of handle this and get ahead of their scouting process and have it as normal as process are the teams that are actually forward thinking and aren't so focused on just this year's draft eligible players um, and actually take the time to look at some of the guys that are up and coming because, you know, I know that for the SEC, for example, it's a lottery system right now for scouts being at games. And so those exposures are just going to be much less. Now, obviously, we hope we get the senior bowl and the shrine game and the combine and all those other opportunities to get eyes on these players. But, you know, this piece of the puzzle is a, is an important one. And, uh, you know, for these guys that are turning over their staff and don't necessarily have familiar people in their regions to continue uh evaluating these schools and the talent within them you know they're gonna they're gonna be in trouble because they're not gonna have the same information that the teams that have been a little bit ahead of the curve and think ahead more so than just being completely fixated on this year's draft class that makes sense it makes sense that the relationships are a big part of scouting and that in the event that you are not able to form them or cultivate them or have them pre-existing aside from this pandemic that you might be kind of hampered. You might be a little handcuffed by this. Now, let me ask you as somebody who has seen the bills front office around. Yeah. How do you feel like the bills are set up? 
Man, um, that's the one thing I will say is I always see Bill's people, whether that's Brandon Bean. Well, Brandon Bean's always with Joe Shane. I've never seen one without the other. But Dennis Hickey's always around in my area uh, as well. And so, you know, I, I no matter what game I go to, it's it's like somebody from the Bills is there. And they are very much boots on the ground. They are very much at these games scouting players, talking to people like there, there's no question about it. And, uh, you know, and maybe I, I do admit that I might just be more in tune with it. Right. I, I see that. Right. I know these people. I, I know they, I, they catch my eye more so than somebody from the Browns or the Chargers, you know, that I'm going to be fixated a little bit more if I see those Bills people. But, you know, it's just it just seems like everywhere I am, those they have somebody there, too. And that's not always the case with every other team. And so they're they're aggressive in that. Uh, piece of it. So hopefully, right, they, they're they okay with not necessarily having as much this year, but also what they've done in the past has set them up very well to uh, kind of overcome that, I, I certainly hope. Excellent. So as we get into draft season at the end of this year and people's attention starts shifting, because let's be honest, we're already, we're always in draft season, but as people's attention starts shifting and as the fan base's attention starts shifting, it's going to start shifting to team needs. Now, obviously, free agency occurs before the draft, and that has a tendency to plug things. But there's a chance that Brandon Bede may be not quite as active in free agency this year as he has been previously, mostly due to salary cap concerns. So there may be a chance that the draft is going to be a lot more needs-based than it has historically been. And as I look at this team, and I think to myself, okay, well, let's operate under the couple assumptions with some free agents. Let's operate under the assumption that Feliciano Matt Milano, Daryl Williams, Josh Norman, Matt Barkley, all not back with the team. Let's just make an assumption that those expiring contracts actually expire. They leave. They are not re-signed. There's a chance that some or all of them are re-signed. It seems unlikely that all of them would be re-signed, but let's go in with that assumption, which means my team needs for this team for 2021 currently look like this, obviously subject to change. Right tackle right guard, cornerback, nickel defender, outside linebacker, backup quarterback. So first off, can you think of any needs that I am glaringly missing? Glaringly, no. Um, The one that I may add in there is defensive end. And the reason I say that is because, you know, Trent Murphy's a free agent as well. And then you have Jerry Hughes and Mario Addison, who are both well on the wrong side of 30 and there's considerable sa- uh, cap savings that could be had by moving on from either one of them. And so when you look f- kind of long-term at, at, at a position that I think the, the team values, you have AJ Epinesa and Daryl Johnson, you know? And so I, that, that, that puts it in, in the discussion, at least for me. I would agree. I absolutely think so. TDN keeps a separate record of the team needs for the bills. What are TDN's needs, and are they ranked similarly? So, as far as the Draft Network, which uh, great website by the way, let me let me pull it up here. The team <laughs> needs that we have down for the Bills, which are created by me. Um, I the Bills are one of the teams that I'm responsible for, and and the way that we do that is um, our scouting staff. We have uh, five people on it. We have four full time employees, one part time. So the four full time employees have seven teams. And the one part-time has four. 
And it's your job to know these teams intimately. So my seven teams, I have to watch them play every single week. And I need to really just follow them like I do the Bills and, and know the, the nuances of what's happening with the organization. And so, you know, we're thinking about, um, you know, obviously expiring contracts. We're thinking about age and then just where it's deficient. And so that's what we're thinking about when we make needs. And so the way the, the Draft Network has it and, and the way that I would agree with it, because I, I made this, uh, is I have it's cornerback as the primary need, offensive tackle, a primary need. Uh, linebacker, a primary need. Uh, line, I said linebacker. Excuse me. Uh, nickel defender, which we wouldn't, we would classify that as cornerback for the sake of uh, consistency. But then uh, also backup quarterback and edge. So we 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 agree very much with what you're saying. Um, the order could be a little bit different, but um, that's kind of how I see it as well. So as we go through these needs, there are some years where it's a, a good class at a particular position. Obviously, famously last year was what they consider to be a historic wide receiver class. And we're starting to see that come to fruition in the league this year. These rookie wide receivers have been as good as advertised. I don't think a lot of people ex- expected Gabriel Davis to be one of those people yeah. who came in and played really well. But Jerry Judy, just as good as advertised. Justin Jefferson has broken out, thankfully, because he's on my fantasy team. And that has been helpful. But As you look toward these classes, fully recognizing that we aren't even halfway through the college football season, how are the classes shaking up at these positions? Is there one of these positions of need that you think, wow, that's a really good one. Maybe we can wait on that position. And is there something in our positions of need that you go, wow, that it's not a good class for that right now. If we want a good one, we might want to get one early. Well, Bruce, I think you and I both agree the top needs, we can debate the order, but the top two are our cornerback and offensive line. And so the way that I thought I would answer this question is by looking back at my last mock draft. Uh, it was published uh, September 21st, so pretty recently. And I could tell you the positional breakdown based on the 32 picks. I had three quarterbacks, one running back, two tight ends, four wide receivers, seven offensive linemen, four defensive tackles, two edge defenders, three linebackers, six cornerbacks, and zero safety. So the two primary needs that you and I both agree on, offensive line and cornerback, I had seven offensive linemen, six cornerbacks. Those were far and away the most popular positions that were selected in my my latest mock draft. So I think that those are two positions of strength in this coming draft as we look at it here in early October. So specifically with offensive tackles, the last couple of years, there's been a narrative going around the league that there is an offensive line problem in this NFL right now. And a lot of it comes to the fact that we're just not getting offensive line talent coming out of college the way we historically have. But last year's offensive line class was good on paper and has been good in practice. And you just said you had seven offensive linemen in the first round in this draft class. So let me ask you. Is this simply a matter of there's more talent coming out last year and this year, or are colleges starting to better prepare offensive linemen for the NFL where potentially we don't have this extreme famine when it comes to offensive line talent? Is there a chance that last year and this year, maybe next year can help the offensive line problem in the NFL not be a problem anymore? Honestly, Bruce, what I think it comes down to is the NFL catching up schematically with what colleges are doing on offense. 
And we had this run of years where the way college football teams played offense was so different than what pro teams were doing and what was being asked specifically of offensive linemen um, was just, it was a night and day thing for them. And now that you're seeing offensive offenses in the NFL, running tempo, running pace, uh, RPOs, you're seeing, I mean, the bills are an air raid team basically in a lot of ways. I mean, two point stance, two point stances and horizontal spread. I mean, you're seeing those concepts introduced in the NFL and I think it's making it easier for these offensive linemen. We're coming, becoming more comfortable evaluating these offensive linemen and forecasting them to the NFL. And they're they're more ready to do it because it's not so night and day. I mean, good gracious, in the past, if you were an offensive lineman for Chip Kelly at Oregon and you were going to go to the NFL and all of a sudden you have to get in a three-point stance and roll your hips into contact and take vertical pass sets and uh, it just wasn't anything you were asked to do in college. And so I think... I think that gap being closed a bit here is helping these offensive linemen, and we're feeling better about them uh, going to the next level, and it's becoming easier for them to actually make meaningful contributions. So let's operate under the assumption right now that the Bills are a playoff team. I think that's probably pretty fair at this point to say that there's a there's a possibility that the Bills are going to be a playoff team in 2020. And that means they're going to be picking between 18 and 32 because there are 14 playoff teams. Who are some people to watch at each of these positions of needs that we've talked about that you think to yourself, okay, right now, gun to my head, I think if the Bills walked out of the draft with that guy between 18 and 32, I'd feel like that was going to be a contributor for this team at a position of need. Well, I, I've got options for for the needs, um, and and really my thought process here are guys that I could envision the Bills drafting, like guys that meet the things that we've learned about the team and what they value at each position. So, uh, get your your pen and paper ready here as I as I rip off some names for everyone to uh, get familiar with here. Uh, at cornerback, we'll start there. Um, Again, the 18 to 32 range. I have Tyson Campbell, a cornerback from Georgia. He's long, he's athletic, good in zone, he's physical. Uh, I have Paulson Adebo, cornerback from Stanford. Uh, you really like him in terms of being uh, a zone corner. He's physical, uh, he tackles. Those are things the Bills covet in cornerbacks. And I also have Sean Wade, which I felt weird about putting him here because I think when it's all said and done, he could go much higher in the first round. Uh, but you know, there's a lot of teams out there that need other things. And so if, if we get a run on other positions, it could put a Sean Wade or a Caleb Farley from Virginia Tech or a Patrick Sertain uh, to the Bills. But I think those are those are more unlikely. So as as of right now, your most realistic corners are Tyson Campbell from Georgia, Paulson Adebo from Stanford. But uh, if you want to cross your fingers, uh, think about Sean Wade, Caleb Farley, and Patrick Sertain. At offensive line, um, I have Alex Leatherwood, uh, Alabama offensive tackle. He's got experience at guard as well, so you, they're going to love that versatility. He's a uh, physical a guy that blocks with an edge, and we know the Bills like that. Uh, Samuel Cosme, he's an offensive tackle from Texas. Uh, really good feet, can move laterally, can get out in space. I know the Bills like to get the screen game going now. Or they like to get their offensive linemen out in space. Samuel Cosme can do that. Uh, very similar to Dylan Radunes from North Dakota State. Uh, so everything I just said about Samuel Cosme, apply that to Dylan Radunes. How about Daniel Falele? This is a, a player from Minnesota. We know they like size at offensive tackle. Well, they don't make him any bigger than uh, than Daniel Falele, who's 6'8", 400 pounds. 
and I wouldn't talk about him if he couldn't move. Like he he can move for 400 pounds. Uh, really, really rare power, really rare mobility. I think the Bills may like a player like that, a, a really kind of a plug at right tackle. And then I'll, I'll also throw Jackson Carmen, offensive tackle from Clemson. I uh, think Daniel Falele, but 50 pounds less at left tackle. On the interior offensive line, uh, Creed Humphrey, a center from uh, Oklahoma. I think he could play guard, so we'll bring him up. I know the Bills don't have a need at all at center, but uh, you could put him at guard. I have no issues with him there. Uh, extremely physical blocker, really good in space. He's a wall in pass protection. Uh, Wyatt Davis from Ohio State, I know you know him. Josh Myers from Ohio State, I know you know him. Uh, those are those are a plug-and-play NFL starters. Wyatt Davis, uh, a really high-ceiling player. And I'll also throw Trey Smith from uh, Tennessee in the mix there. He's not a, a very nimble guy, but if the Bills just wanted to get a people mover uh, at guard, a high-character guy, Trey Smith from Tennessee would, would fit the description. If they wanted to go linebacker, uh, Dylan Moses from Alabama, Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa from Notre Dame, really nice coverage backer there if they were to look for a Matt Milano replacement. Same thing with J- Chaz Surratt from North Carolina and Jabril Cox from LSU. All three of those guys really kind of fit that weak side linebacker that uh, the Bills would would be looking for. Uh, I don't think they'll be looking for a backup quarterback in the first round. My goodness, that'd be crazy. And then uh, lastly, I'll throw out edge, uh, just guys that are long, uh, heavy-handed, that kind of fit that that Sean McDermott prototype. Quiddy Pay from Michigan and Carlos Basham from Wake Forest. So that's a lot of names, uh, but I wanted to kind of just blitz you guys with with some players to keep uh, keep eyes on here as the season unfolds. Yeah, I mean, who would who would spend a high pick on a backup quarterback? I mean, that would be insane, right? I mean, nobody we've talked about today would do something like that. <clears throat> anyway, moving along, I really appreciate that. I hope you all had your your pens and paper handy for jotting that down. Obviously, I'm a, you know a little biased. I'm a Sean Wade guy. Not gonna lie, if Sean Wade was on the board when the Bills picked, I'd be pretty excited about that. But now that the Bill's Mafia, who's listening to this, and the football fans at large, have an idea of some people who might be at play in the positions of need. This weekend, there's a possibility right now. I checked my Twitter while we were talking. There is still no word on whether or not the game is going to be played. So if, for example, Bill's Mafia finds a need to have their energy moved to a different spot this weekend. They need to channel all the mafia energy, all the shout song, the Zubas energy, all of those things into a set of college football games. They're going to plop themselves down on the couch and they're going to say to themselves, okay, I am going to channel this energy into some draft discussions. You've got a game in each time slot. What games would you tell them to watch starting at noon on Saturday all the way through the end of the evening? And what prospects are you watching in each game? All right. So this is 100%. I want the most bang for my buck watching players that would make sense for the Bills and and meaningful uh, matchups. So I have a a game for you in each time slot. And unfortunately, we don't get Pac-12 after dark quite yet. So we only have three slots because I'd have kept you awake until uh, 1 32 a.m. with me watching players. But uh, consider yourself lucky there's no Pac-12 game. So we'll start at noon, and we're going to watch the Red River rivalry, Texas versus Oklahoma. The attraction here is two offensive linemen I told you about. Uh, the offensive tackle from Texas, Samuel Cosme. 
um, you know, get a look at that that range that he has, the, those long arms, that mobility, and then Creed Humphrey, the center from Oklahoma. And what I like about this showcase for those two, two specific players is it's a rivalry game. This is going to be one of those where everyone gets up for it. You're going to see everyone's best shot. Nobody wants to lose a high stakes game. And both of these teams are coming off losses, right? Oklahoma's lost two in a row. Texas just lost last week to uh, TCU. They're going to be hungry. They're going to want to win this game. A great chance to get eyes on two offensive linemen that I think would make sense for the Bills. At 330, number 14, Tennessee at number three, Georgia. This is a really good showcase to watch this Georgia defense that I think has three players that make a lot of sense for the Bills. I told you about Tyson Campbell, uh, one of their cornerbacks. His uh, his running mate there at cornerback, Eric, Eric Stokes, is a, is a really nice player as well. Um, he profiles very well to man coverage, which the Bills are not necessarily a man coverage team, but if you can play man, you you could probably play zone, right? Right, Bruce? Uh, we certainly <laughs> hope, but uh, you know, I really like the way he plays the football. I like how physical he is, and I think he's got enough length to play in zone. And then Monty Rice, a linebacker for them, um, high-character guy, good lateral mobility, can play in coverage. And so if the Bills were to wait until the second round to look for a linebacker, Monty Rice would be a great choice, and, and uh, he'll get a chance to play up against Tennessee. I'll, I'll give you one other guy on the Tennessee side of things, Trey Smith, that that guard that they have, a uh, big-time people mover. He's going up against Jordan Davis, who is a, a mountain of a man for Georgia. And so there, there's going to be some heavyweight uh, showdowns there with those two guys. But, you know, I could see the Bills liking a Trey Smith and, and, and his power. If they like Quentin Spain, I mean, like Trey Smith's like the A++++ version of Quentin Spain. And so that's a guy to keep in mind. At 7.30, guys, this isn't the best game at 7.30. If you want the best game, watch Miami and Clemson. But we're watching football on Saturday for scouting players for the Buffalo Bills, and for that reason, we have to watch Florida State at number five, Notre Dame on NBC. A lot of players here that I think make make a ton of sense for the Bills. We'll start with the with the Notre Dame side of things. Uh, linebacker Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa. I mean, you want to talk about like a a, a super athletic, rangy, can cover. You know, he can carry tight ends, blitz. I mean, just a dream weak side linebacker. I think that if the Bills were to let Matt Milano go, this would be the type of player you would want exactly to replace him. Uh, Liam Eichenberg, their offensive tackle for Notre Dame. Uh, you know, I, he's long and he's physical. That You know, that's what the Bills like in offensive tackles. So get eyes on him. And then Dalen Hayes is a defensive end for um, uh, Notre Dame that is long-armed, heavy hands, uh, compression-style player that – uh, is a lot in a lot of ways like AJ Epinesa. So check him out. And then on the Florida State side of things, we should get our first look at Hamsa Nasrul Dean. Uh, he's a safety hybrid defender for the Seminoles defense. Um, love his tape. I mean, he plays with a, a ton of energy. He's physical. Uh, he can cover ground. He's got ball skills, a very natural athlete. And so we talked about Jeremy Chin and Kyle Duggar last year, Bruce. The guy this year for that type of role is Hamza Nasr dean He's coming off of an ACL tear, so he should make his season debut uh, against Notre Dame, and I'm anxious to see him. That sounds like a good time. That sounds like a really good time. I've got myself written down. I'm good to go. There's one last thing I want to talk about before we get out of here, and that's specifically the idea that there's a chance that the Bills go into this offseason, and specifically this draft, with one piece of information that they did not have 
last offseason. And you can argue whether or not they actually did have it, but there's a chance they go into this offseason with the knowledge that Josh Allen is the guy. They go into this offseason with the knowledge that they're going to pick up the fifth year option for sure, which, you know, let's be honest, that was not necessarily always guaranteed. There's going to be people in his class that may not get it picked up. There's a very reasonable chance that if things continue to go their way, they're going that Sam Darnold won't get his picked up, especially if the Jets end up with the number one overall pick. So as you start to look at that and you say, okay, how do you draft differently when you know you have your guy versus drafting when you think you might have your guy? And I am of the opinion that the Bills have historically not done well drafting backup quarterbacks. I was not a Nathan Peterman guy. I was not terribly interested in the Jake Fromm pick. We got Tyree Jackson as an undrafted free agent. And there is sort of a an idea that there's a distinction between when your backup quarterback should be drafted in some categories and when your draft when your backup quarterback should be drafted in different categories depends on what school of thought you fall into obviously as previously mentioned howie roseman falls into the draft a high pick with your backup quarterback but where do you fall in the if you know somebody has their guy if you know a team has their guy where should you start looking for a backup quarterback what kind of traits do you think that the Bills should be looking for in their backup quarterback? And do you have people you're thinking of right now? Loaded question, Bruce. When you first started talking there, I started thinking to myself, do the Bills really just pick up that fifth-year option on Josh Allen or do they just pay him? And I think back to the 2017 class. I think about Deshaun Watson. I think about Patrick Mahomes. Both of those guys signed extensions. You know, I mean, Deshaun Watson got four years, 156 million dollars. I'm, we're not even going to talk about Mahomes deal. That's that's just crazy. That's that that's just wild. We're not talking about that. But, you know, they didn't pick up. I mean, is it a situation where the Bills go ahead and give Josh Allen his $40 million a year? Because that changes things a lot um, in terms of how you look at the roster, because you're, you're going to go from paying Josh Allen. I mean, I'm sure it's what, five, six, seven million dollars this year to 40. You know, it's it's a big difference. And so, um that piece of it certainly impacts the way I look at the rest of the roster and the backup quarterback thing. But, you know, I, I think based on what we've learned about Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean, I have a fundamental difference in the way I want to attack the backup quarterback position than the way they have. I mean, Nate Peterman, Jake Fromm, Matt Barkley, those guys don't move the needle for me. Those are very um, just – kind of get you by a game type players that you better not need them to make a, an important throw or really just uh, put the team on their back or have, you know, th- or create any chaos because they're mobile. I mean, th- th- those are not guys that interest me. So do you take a bills team that we hope is a long-term contender here and draft a quarterback and hope that if Josh Allen gets injured, that this mid-round quarterback can step in and and keep things going, or do you try to get a veteran? You know, do you try to like get a guy that has some experience? That you know, an Andy Dalton. Like last year, we saw Jameis Winston, Andy Dalton. We saw Case Keenum, uh, all signed deals to become backup quarterbacks. I I'm personally given where this team is, those are the types of players that interest me a whole lot more than somebody in the draft. Now, I like Desmond Ritter from Cincinnati. 
he's a guy like if if there's a mid round quarterback that moves the needle for me, I can get behind Desmond Ritter because I think in a lot of ways he's got a lot of similar issues to Josh Allen. Really good physical tools, a big arm, he can run, but the decision making is not always there. The accuracy hasn't always been there, but the high level moments are really really exciting. And so that's kind of my mid round quarterback right now. But for this Bills team. If you get Desmond Ritter, I hope he's your QB three and that you have a meaningful player at QB two that the season isn't completely lost if you lose Josh Allen. You know whose contract is up after the end of this year? Matt Barkley. Matt Barkley. You know who else has a contract that's ending at the end of this year in the backup quarterback space is uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick. <laughs> per- that's perfect. I, I'm all about it, man. Yeah, just that, so you know, fair warning to all of you involved. I am going to be pounding the table to bring Ryan Fitzpatrick back to Buffalo. Just so sure. you know, that's a great idea. That's, that's exactly what I'm talking about, Bruce. Get Ryan Fitzpatrick. And what you love about a player like that is, you know, he'd be great for the locker room, but he, he knows his role, right? He's not, he's not coming in to take down Josh Allen or he wants to be a starter again. Like he just wants to be part of a team. He loves it and he can provide value as a backup quarterback. I mean, that that's now you got me excited. I, I, I now I'm going to be disappointed if Ryan Fitzpatrick isn't Josh Allen's backup next year. I was pounding the table two years ago to bring him in as the absolutely perfect mentor yeah. for Josh Allen, because I said, you know, if Ryan Fitzpatrick had physical tools, he would be a good quarterback. And guess who has all the physical tools? Josh <laughs> Allen. So yeah. I was like, I was trying to create some sort of hybrid quarterback, some sort of mecha quarterback that in my head, this Frankensteinian quarterback, I guess, that was going to be a, a franchise guy. And now it looks like Josh Allen is breaking out. And what we do with Josh Allen, whether we pay him, whether we do the fifth year option, it's going to change a lot, like you said, about this offseason. So Joe, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you coming on and doing this. I I know that this was a little bit more of a last minute thing, and I hope that Bill's Mafia found value in this. I really, really appreciate it. It means a lot to me personally that you took time out of your day and you jumped on and you did this with me. Why don't you tell everybody where they can find you, also what you're working on, and then we'll uh, we'll hop on out. Uh, Yeah, I pleasure's mine, Bruce. Always love talking football with you. Um, and, uh, I love talking draft with you. I think that's one of the things that as I was becoming more familiar with you and your work, I saw the draft piece of it first. And then I was like, Oh yeah. Like he's a draft and a bills guy. This is, this guy speaks my language. And then we see football pretty similarly, except you're wrong about coverage being more important than path, <laughs> path rush. I mean, other than that, man, you, we, we really do see things uh, really similarly. So a uh, pleasure is mine. Uh, you, if you want to hear me talk more football, you can do it. Uh, I have two daily podcasts: uh, Locked On Bills. I talk Bills daily. I'm Locked On Bills, and then I talk football in general, uh, NFL, college football, NFL draft on the Draft Dudes podcast. And then my written work you can find at thedraftnetwork.com. Right now, honestly, uh, you know I'm doing some writing, but my main main emphasis is uh, the podcasting, but also just keeping up with the teams that I'm responsible for. Like I told you about those seven teams. Uh, My teams are actually, just to let you know, the NFC South, the Bills, Jets, and Titans. So I'm dialed in on those teams, uh, studying them, watching their tape. And then obviously I have uh, certain college uh, regions that I'm responsible as well, mainly the ACC. So I'm dialed in on that and uh, getting ready for, you know, knowing what these teams are, knowing what they have coming up and and being able to really talk about them in the offseason as we get, through free agency in the draft. So that's where my uh, my point of emphasis is right now. 
NFC South. So let me ask you real fast before we get out of here. So is Jameis going to get a crack at that starting job when Drew Brees is gone next year or what? Well, the problem with that is the Saints are like going to be $80 million over the cap. Uh, And part of the problem is they're paying Taysom Hill $16 million next year. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. They've got a lot of challenges ahead of them to just field a football team next year. The guys that they're going to have to cut, the concessions they're going to have to make, I mean, it's going to be biblical in, in a lot of ways. And, and it may rival only that of the, of the Philadelphia Eagles. So um, if Jameis will come back and take a deal similar to what he took this year, yes. But if he's going to try to get paid like a starter, they can't do it. Well, you know, I know what I always say. If you have a chance to pay a utility player $16 million a year, I mean, you got to do it. (laughs) You just have to. (laughs) Joe, thank you so much. For those of you out there in Bill's Mafia and listening around the world, this is Bruce Nolan saying, that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumblings. Buffalo Rumblings.